Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome to a very special episode of the Hidden History Happy Hour. It's our 50th, an- 50th anniversary. It's our 50th episode, my friend. <laughs> our, our 50th anniversary is somewhere away, but uh, I'm delighted. Anniversary. Now, listen, I was going to pop a bottle of expensive champagne for right. this uh, August occasion. And my fiance said, no, 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 your podcast is not worth that at all. So. Oh, I have, I have so much champagne left of my wedding. I'd have, I'd have sent you one if I, had I known. Well, we'll um, save it for the hundredth episode. How about that? I agree. I am. I don't know which. So I am drinking both a word from and a word to our sponsors. Uh, the word from our sponsors is that this Blue Run bourbon is going down extremely well, and the word to our sponsors is that this Blue Run bourbon has gone down <laughs> extremely well, and this bottle is uh, running a little on empty. <laughs> I don't know if we can export now. I believe I hand delivered that to you, didn't I? You you did, but I'm going to see you pretty soon. That is true. We'll we'll make that work. We will make that work. I'll tell you what. Bring me a bottle of champagne. I'll bring you a bottle of Blue Run. Done. Cheers. Now, what I'm enjoying, Cheers. since I wasn't allowed to use this, this champagne, is in honor of our story today, I'm enjoying a Tempranillo, which, of course, is a Spanish red. However, to be honest, not very good. So I'm not going to give the name to our viewers. Oh. I love Spanish wine. I love, uh, and I love, port- I don't like port particularly, but I love yeah. Portuguese wine. Um, I uh, I went to a, um, a restaurant here in the UK, uh, in London called Barduro uh, before we were recording today. And I had um, some Vino Verde, which is the, uh, the, the green wine. They grow, yeah. it's acquired taste because a lot of people find it very sharp. It's grown very high. When you come in flying into Lisbon, you'll often see it right right up on the top of the highest hills. They pick it you pick it early. It's some people find it sharp, almost sour, but I I, I love it. Um, so the Iberia for me is a great place for booze and Spanish wine. I think is fantastic. I do too, in general. And on my bucket list is to visit the uh, Douro area and uh, spend some quality time there. This is just was a uh, hit or miss. We got it. We like a lot of Tempranillo. Next time I'll be more careful, but won't stop me from drinking it, of course, because anything no. for the show. Well, that's that kind of commitment that's made you the man you are. Uh, my eyes were opened to the Dora a lot by um, uh, a wine importer in the UK called Red Squirrel, which merged with another wine importer. To, and they're very clever. They called their new business Graft because uh, they merged these these two companies. Uh, I'm kind of down on them, though, because the, the owner of that business, a guy called Nick Darlington, who runs marathons constantly and he's taller than me and he's good looking. God, I hate the bastard. Uh, yeah. But uh, but he's, he really opened my eyes to uh, to Spanish wine, reds particularly. Yeah, yeah, very good stuff. Well, look, uh, we got a lot of 50th anniversary talk to happen in, in a bit here, but uh, let's launch right into our story for today. And this is your choice, uh, viewers, because you voted in our poll that you wanted a crime story and we have one for you correct uh, so the decision was to have a story about crime and i therefore um turned up my volume two um copy of more lessons uh, from history to chapter 80 uh, when winning is losing um and uh, the story goes like this it's about a guy called jacinto zambrano uh spanish shopkeeper 
he had this uh, fantastic well, bar, he kept barkeeper. He had this great get rich quick scheme, um, which of course people who promulgate them always think couldn't possibly fail. <laughs> um, in, in the 1980s, Spain had this uh, annual lottery still running um, today. One of our listeners um, told me after I told the story on Twitter, so I got it right for the book. Ah. Uh, it's still in existence. Um, and the the lo- annual lottery comes around, but once a year, and it's called El Gordo, which means the fat one. It's a it's the, it's a really big prize, and um, the the main prize is huge, and tickets are correspondingly expensive. And Jacinto Zambrano buys a ticket and he pins it up in his bar for everyone uh, to see. And those who came into his bar in uh, Palencia, not a mispronunciation. I don't mean Valencia. Uh, Palencia is uh, a little uh, town in uh, northern Spain. Customers who came into his bar were offered the opportunity to buy a one fiftieth uh, stake in the ticket. He's in a poor neighborhood. Tickets are expensive. People couldn't afford uh, a ticket for themselves. So the take-up was full. He sold uh, all allotments. Uh, the trouble was, he thought the great way to make money here was to sell it five times over. So he <laughs> sold a 50th share to 250 uh, people. Now, those people, of course, noted down the numbers on the ticket. They tuned in their radios. They turned on their TV for the announcement. Even though this was a, a gamble, they're fantastically unlikely to win. Uh, they were really um, you know, committed in their minds to this prospect of an amazing uh, future. And this foolproof, if uh, plainly fraudulent scheme, uh, I'm afraid, uh, failed to consider one thing. He had incredibly bad luck. He won the lottery. (laughs) 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 He'd sold sold a 50th share 250 times. And therefore, on Christmas Eve, two days after the... So they draw it just before Christmas. Two days after the uh, lottery result was announced, Christmas Eve, 1986, the Spanish police find themselves presented with the easiest fraud uh, to conclude in the history of policing because he hands himself into the local police station for his own protection. Well, I just love being the bemused desk sergeant. Someone turns up and says, here is what I've done. And for my own good, I'm now going to tell you exactly how I've done it. Please arrest me. Please arrest me and please put me away from the people of the small town, all of whom are now out to get me. I uh, I, I love that story. And that that was a, a reminder of um, uh, that. That's the answer to our um, poll on criminology and uh, request for a crime story. Uh, Brian, I just want to give you one footnote because I had a lot of discussion after I told that story online about um, the plan in um, the inspired Mel Brooks uh, movie, uh, The Producers in which our heroes seek to find a play which is guaranteed to be a massive flop which will enable them to walk away with the money from the backers and to their astonishment of course springtime for hitler which is the the name of the play they put on turns out to be a smash hit Uh, and there's a great dialogue between two the two principals uh one says you leo um how much percentage of a play can there be altogether? Uh, Leo says, Max, you can only have 100% of anything. Uh, well, how much of springtime for Hitler have we sold? 25,000%. <laughs> yeah, that does charge and must have come again, sir. <clears throat> I would like the record to reflect, Alex, that as a special 50th episode gift to you, I did not, uh, I did not interrupt that story at all. 
that is a 50th first. Yes. Now it was only a, you know, two minutes story, story, but still, but still, uh, it's a great, it's a great story. It, it's, it's reminiscent of almost every Ponzi scheme uh, that that's happened since with the exception of choosing jail over the mob. Do we know anything about either what it's like in Spanish jail or, or whatever happened to him after he got out? I don't. And um, I suppose the fact that uh, that doesn't come up when I, you know, as you know, I, I have to research the stories that I tell in the book. And sometimes people are disappointed that so I'm, I'm now, you know, nudging 200 stories online, uh, many more than in, in the two books. And the books have some stories, too, that aren't told online. So all in all, uh, I'm, I'm over 200 stories told all up. I research each and every one of them. There are some that I can't publish because um, I can't stand them up. Uh, this one I researched, and I can't find any further trace of of him. And I think that's probably a good sign. I think yeah. it's probably a good sign he didn't get shanked or something. I don't mean to giggle as I say shanked, but you, you know what I mean. Yeah, I'm going to circle back to your process because I, I want I want our viewers to know more about that. But but just to to this issue of him preferring the law to the mob, uh, we're both various degrees of recovering lawyers, you and I. Yeah. And one of the most uh, misunderstood and misrepresented lines in all of Shakespeare is first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers, which was in fact said, but it was said by a dastardly character who wanted to rule the world. And his plan was you get rid of the lawyers, then you have anarchy, then we take over. It's said by a bad guy. And um, I was, um, he said immodestly, plugging his media appearances elsewhere. I was doing an appearance on a, a channel we have in the, here in the UK, appropriately called GB News. And I was... Um, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Now I'm going to interrupt you since I didn't before. That's was right. that, by any chance, that name of the network thought up by the same geniuses that came up with more lessons from history? More lessons from history. <laughs> Do you know what? We've got so many talented advertising and commissioning people. I think it was separate people. I see why you, you made the connection. Um, I was talking um, with a host who said that, uh, whose view, and I like this person and respect this person, but uh, her view was that if you are suspected of terrorism, um, then you should be automatically um, ruled not to be a legitimate asylum seeker or refugee coming to the UK. And my point was, but our authorities refuse to present any evidence of, of terrorism in these cases, you know, because they fear revealing sources and methods right. and, and so forth. So they've got these, there aren't many, there's like 19 identified individuals who've come to the UK and claimed asylum or refugee status who are on watch lists, effectively, who are on named lists of people who suspected of terrorism. And I said, but our authorities refuse to disclose uh, any evidence. She said, so what? This should be out anyway. And that's where you lose me. I'm a good law and order person, but this this is my point about uh, it's the bad guys who say hang all the lawyers because those the rule of law is there to protect all of us. And if in the end it's merely the statement you are a terrorist that means you will be excluded from any normal um, due process, then the statement you Brian Ter Brian Cunningham are a terrorist will be enough to exclude you, for example, from citizenship of the United States, where it to be in your case, or in the United Kingdom if it was mine. And um, and uh, the other point I always try to to make to individuals like this is a, a criminal uh, lawyer hack is that when the case appears against somebody to be strong, that's when they need the help of their lawyer the most. And that's what you would want your lawyers um, 
to think and they would want them to believe in in your innocence because the presumption of innocence is genuinely meaningful it doesn't apply only if it if it's applied in the case of people who are palpably innocent and everybody likes it's in tough cases where the individual right. is unattractive and their their case is unattractive that those uh, those things matter the most anyway i'm droning on a bit but the reason I'm, i say all that was to your point about um the law being a, a fruitful protection for us all those protections are there for all of us yeah. Well, I always tell my clients who are disdainful of our profession that there's only one thing worse than your lawyer, and that's the other guy's lawyer. Um, right. And, and also, this puts me in mind of, I can't believe, I can't remember this, one of our founding fathers, I'm going to guess John Adams, but I'm not certain, uh, famously said uh, regarding our presumption of innocence and due process that better a hundred, I'm going to garble this a little bit, better a uh, hundred uh, guilty men go free than one innocent man go to prison or something like that yeah i don't recall which of your luminaries that was but um you had a generation who well they were british really weren't they so i suppose we can both claim them uh there was a generation of of uniquely talented writers who had an amazing turn of phrase i thank goodness because your constitution as, as written was one of the luminescent documents in the english language but um i think that 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 distillation of wisdom is is palpably in, in my view true um also, those Englishmen choose chose leave. I would I would just note certainly, and they chose to do so within the finest traditions of the English culture. Uh, they chose to govern them themselves, and I um, I admire and and respect their decision, even if ultimately I regret the little local difficulty that uh, resulted. Jury's still out on whether it, it worked out. Who knows? Time will tell. Time will indeed tell. Um, how do we get on to? How do we... <laughs> You I don't know, but it's a good it's a good chat. Uh, it's a good chat, and but let's let's circle back to our show because really that's what we're we're celebrating today, and we have so many more listeners and viewers now than we had at the beginning. Yeah, it's amazing. And thanks to all of you. Cheers to all of you for cheers to joining us and viewers. sticking with us. Thank you very much. Um, I think it's worth just you telling your origin story one more time, and I know that you absolutely have a hard and fast rule of not retelling stories. Now, me and my daughters will tell you this. I don't mind telling the same story a hundred times. So we're not going to retell stories, but we might talk about a little bit of the background of some of the stories that you, our listeners, picked as your favorites. But talk, tell us again the, the, the moving story of how you got into this. Thanks, Brian. Um, so a couple of years ago, um, so the last quarter of 2020, my, my, um, my father was very sick. Uh, and I moved back um, home to live with my parents for his uh, final months. And um, so I don't know, November 2020, something like that. Um, and, uh, he, and he died in the February uh, of 2021. Right. And, um, and so I did several months of uh, you know, doing as best I could for, for my father and spending a lot of time with him. And... Uh, uh, lockdown was cursed by many of us for many reasons, but for that at least, it meant that I could go and you know do a semblance of work on some of, of those days, and um, I didn't have any sense I was missing out on anything because um, nothing was happening. And um, there was they were hard times, Brian, but they were they were good times. Anyway, my father's condition meant that he slept a lot, and he was uh, on some medication, which meant he slept a lot, and. So I was at home in rural uh, Suffolk. I was at home in you know, on the outskirts of Bury St Edmunds, the town I grew up on. We talked about it in several times in different uh, stories in the podcast. And, right down the um, road from the Human Skin Bible. The the Human Skin Bible is in my hometown. That's so correct. And um, 
and my my dad was a great lover of history and lots of his um works of history are around me and you know idly turning to different shelves for distraction um i, I always prefer reading in print if i can to reading on a screen or, or reading on a device that I, I i bless the i've got the kindle app on my phone i, I use it all the time but it, it, by preference if i can i'll, I'll read something in, in print yeah um so i was reading some of my dad's old history books and um, Hold on one second. Let me just set the scene scene for us a little bit. Because when you tell this story, I've never been to your father's house. I picture a scene from Clue, like a very tall ceiling room with dark paneling, with books on all sides, nine levels up with the ladder that you can move around on wheels to get the books. What is his library like? Yeah, so there's no ladder. Uh, uh, but otherwise, you're about right. Um, yeah, property is cheaper when you're outside London. And I quite a big two retired teachers they, they did just fine um i got no uh, my, my parents um you know, raised a family and did well in the house I, I grew up in in which my mother still lives and yes it's a it's a big dining room converted basically into a library and the shelves are indeed dark and uh they are indeed tall so otherwise you are on the money uh, and sitting in the middle of the room is my laptop which i'm still you know firing off the occasional work email and checking twitter and so forth yeah and, and i thought I I'd started, you know, I like anecd- I I find that I learn best through stories, uh, you know, which is not a bad way to learn. It's yeah, basically what the parables in the Bible are about. It's basically how we instruct children in the earliest lessons in history. It's how you remember things, mm-hmm. and, and so stories would emerge for me through what I was reading. And I thought that um, uh, I thought I would tell some stories online. I thought I would tell some some stories from history, from the kinds of things that I was reading. And Brian, honestly, I didn't know if I was going to do 10 of these things. I I just thought I'd just tell a couple of stories and see how they went. The amazing thing was that it turned out, um, I suppose I shouldn't have been surprised, so surprised in hindsight, um, that there were just as many people, A, as bored as I was, um, mm. sitting um, you know, frustrated or sitting alone or sitting without um, a lot of um a, a lot of stimulation and um uh, and there were, and a lot of people who loved history as much as i did so on the 10th of january 2021 i posted a story about jean baptiste bernadotte who um was one of napoleon's um minions and went off to become king of sweden and, and we, um, if i were if i recall correctly we still haven't done that story yet right is that right? Yeah, I well, think we've got to get that, get that one up for next that's time. That's the very first, yeah. 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 So, let, uh, me, well, let me ask you a question about that, though. How did you pick that as your first story? First of all, to- to- just yeah, random? I, I had no plan. Like, I didn't know this was going to be a... Uh, heavens, I just certainly didn't know it was going to be a book, let alone I was going to tell 200 of these things and have a podcast about it. I was just telling a random story that I enjoyed about, you know, the, the vagaries of, of destiny, where... Yeah, the Napoleonic line fizzled out, you know, burned bright, but fizzled out very quickly in France. And the house of Bernadotte is still on the throne of Sweden today, yeah. right? So it's absolutely, you know, um, this this relatively minor French nobleman gets gets asked to go off and be um, king of Sweden because they think it would be helpful with the French. And so his, this, his, his descendants are still there. So this, just, so this just happened to be the story you were reading on the day that you decided to put one out in public. Correct. Okay. Got it. Yeah, uh, correct. And um, not least, I, I suppose, um, like a lot of you know, boys, I like military history and I um, 
I, I I've got a, a couple. A friend of mine recommended going to uh, the Hanseatic Seaport of Lubeck one day. I still haven't gone, um, but there's a battle at Lubeck where um, the there was a the, the the French were acquitting themselves pretty admirably against the Prussians and their uh, normally a battle resolves with and the Germans won, uh, but the Prussians <laughs> were ta- the Prussians were taking a pasting, and their allies the Swedes uh, were in the same boat, and they were treated very well by their their French um, opponents, um, Bernadotte, uh, principal among them, which is why when these minor Swedish nobility, uh, minor Swedish noblemen went home to a problem because their king was going gaga. And they were looking around for somebody to put on the throne. They thought, "Hey, what about that nice Mr. Bernadotte we met, who you know didn't execute <laughs> us and you know, kept us all? He, he seems pretty close to Napoleon. Wrong, as it turned out. Uh, he seemed pretty close to Napoleon. Uh, why don't we get him in? Uh, within a few years, by the way, of being on the throne of Sweden, I'm kind of basically telling the story, but but a few years of being on the throne of Sweden, he declared war against France. Sure, <laughs> the, the man had why style. The hey, man, I know. Listen. Hey, it's a it's an English habit. Who, who could blame the Swedes? Listen, where you stand depends on where you sit. Uh, that's very true for sure okay so that was the first one you started to get a pretty significant following on twitter and almost immediately yeah very flattering yeah and how do you decide so one i guess how do you decide which stories from your dad's library you're gonna decide to share with us and then how do you decide the, the beauty of both of the books in my view is they're either obscure enough that no one's ever heard anything about it, which is a delight, or they're something we all think we know about, but there's a, there's a twist to it that we didn't expect. How do you, how do you pick your stories? I guess, basically. So I have really three rules, right? And they're all obvious. If you, if you think for a moment, which is helpful for for me, I don't claim to be the greatest intellectual in the world. I certainly don't claim to be a professional historian. Um, Rule number one is got to be provable. I can't yeah. not I can't just turn an urban uh, legend and 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 say it's a story. It's I've got to be able to stand it up. Uh, rule number two: it's got to be not too obvious or well well known. It's got to have and uh, something to it that is informative beyond the story that everybody knows. You know, even if extremely well documented, I wouldn't uh, want to tell a story about Robert the Bruce and try 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 again because everybody in my country at least has heard the story. Right. And rule number three: it's got to be short. Right? I'm telling yeah. them on Twitter. One of the reasons that the book has, he said immodestly again, one of the reasons the books are so well is that the stories are short. Yeah, You can get through one or two in a visit to the smallest room in your house. You can read one or two to a child before they lose attention. Uh, and so that, that's been a winning formula for me. And it's come from telling the stories on social media, where even if you do a thread and the thread is relatively long in social media terms, the story is still short. I am not telling a five page story. I'm yeah. telling a, a two, three-page story. Yeah, there's a few exceptions, but in general, that's right. Yeah. Have you thought about, I just just occurred to me right now, have you thought about um, doing uh, uh, lessons from history for kids? You know, uh, like I, for, for elementary school kids. You're very, so fun, that's one of the things I, um, I don't want to over, overblow it. I mean, I've had a really nice response, but I'm not you know, deluged with thousands of, of reader responses, but you know, I'm cer- certainly dozens of people have been in touch, and that's one of the, what you've said is one of the suggestions I sometimes receive. But I, when I say dozens, I mean people who've emailed or actually written, right. believe it, it still happens physical letter. I mean, I get messages on Twitter all the time. Um, and uh, Wait, are you saying people write you physical, like actual 
pen and ink letters. This is it happens when you write something. It's certainly nothing like the same as I wrote an I wrote a column once in a newspaper in the UK, which is very well known, if not universally well liked, called the Daily Mail. My yeah. God, I got I got loads of letters. People, so some oh. people, people still actually write letters, but mostly it's you know it's emails or and then the messages I get on Twitter are, are just tons and tons of them. Yeah. Um, but the what as you imply, one of the things people ask is why don't you do one of these for kids? I suppose I'm not saying no. One, there is a whole world of child of genuine professional educators and, true, yeah. uh, and people who are trained to do this thing, which I am not. So I'm kind of cautious of of that thrashing around an amateur historian having fun is one thing actually trying to do something scholastic when i'm not qualified yeah. uh, this is not false modesty it's accurate modesty um i'm not sure it is a good idea but the second reason brian i like i like a bit of smutty uh, i yeah, like a bit of i like a dirty right. joke i like a dirty that's joke right. at the end uh, you know right. I, i've got a fair number of stories that are quite naughty you know and none right. of, those things are not gonna now what does sit well with kids is yuck is you know bogeys yeah. and bogeys and poo and someone's getting their head cut off and you know i've got well i remember i, I told the story of uh william the exploder um yeah. and yeah. you know kids love that someone who goes bang who it, it, the, the, the gas is inside hey, it, it worked really pop. well for the drummers in spinal tap as i recall yeah all the way up to 11 um yeah. but the but, but funnily enough one i don't know if you've been following the kind of sensitivity reading interpretations that's been going on over the works of people like Roald Dahl, where the twits are no longer ugly, the witches are no longer warty, nobody's fat anymore. You know, you can't. So you're cutting off a lot of the, the fun and the kind of stories that I, I might otherwise have been interested in telling. And two, as I say, I, I'm not really a, an expert in it, but it's the hard to reach audience that I think is the I kind of accidentally hit upon a lot of it. Isn't the, you know, kids in their five, six, seven, eight, nine. It's children in their early teens who've lost an interest in history or think it's really boring. And um, and that's the audience where I've had people get in touch to say, and it's always a variation on my son, my daughter. Yeah. yeah. Thought they hated history, but my yeah, they, I gave them a copy of your book and they finished it in the weekend and asked for the next one. Yeah. Well, we had a few of those at our... Uh, yes, we, yes, we did, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we did. So let's let's turn back to the the poll that we did of our wonderful viewers and listeners, and um, we asked uh, of our first forty nine episodes or forty eight, I guess probably at the time this came out, uh, what was your favorite? And uh, I will make a, a small confession right now. If you look at the results of the poll, uh, in in fourth place uh, with one vote uh, is our pilot episode. And that vote is me <laughs> <laughs> because, because I loved everything about that. I loved planning it with you. I right. loved the excitement of doing it for the first time. I loved the fact that either you acted, you faked it very well, or you didn't realize that my part of the story was actually about my mom. That was very meaningful. Uh, I didn't know that. I, I really didn't fake that. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I loved it, but that's one vote. So we'll put that aside. Um, coming in uh, in next place was our live London episode. So let's talk about that. So we went to High Timber Restaurant. Thanks, High Timber. Cheers. Cheers, High Timber. Where uh, you have a salad named after you, which I did not try. Um, it's going to change your world. It's going to change everything you, you think about salads. Pulling back the curtain a little bit about that episode, I will say to our listeners and viewers, and those of you who were there know this, we were planning on doing two episodes 
uh, that evening. And uh, because of the generosity, <laughs> of we got Pound so toasted. We got so toasted. Yeah. Oh, in we, between we, shows, we got to the point where we couldn't do the second show. Yeah, well, we, if we'd done it, it would have been mostly burbling and horizontal. So, on balance, we said no. But looking back, maybe we should have done it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, at least we could have put it in the blooper reel. That would have been that would have been good. But I love our live. So we had a great time in New York. And, that was a great uh, summer. Uh, with uh, Mike Cole and Neil Yarden and a special episode that our viewers haven't even seen yet that's going to be amazing. Um, and, but I, London was special because a lot of uh, Alex's people were there and, uh, and it was very enjoyable. Thank you. It was great to do. Uh, there was a fun episode and I think it's one of our best, I think it's one of our best episodes online so far. Yeah. So coming in, um, oh, I got this out of order. That's actually second favorite. Coming yeah. in, uh, third favorite is our uh, Grizzly Goings On episode, our first live episode that we did with our friends at Palantir in Denver, where we talked about a story that I'm sure would appeal to the to the, the teenagers you were mentioning, uh, America's most prolific uh, cannibal, most famous cannibal. That was fun because that was done uh, during lockdown, during COVID. And if you remember this, I'm sure you do. We weren't allowed to have a live audience other than the employees of the company because they security wouldn't let people in. Yeah, and they but they loads of people came and it was great. And we had a yeah, uh, we had a, a in part because of course people hadn't had very limited opportunity to socialize. Um, there was a uh, John Grant, our, our mutual friend, one of our, our first uh, celebrity uh, bartenders. Celebrities on the golf bar. He made some amazing cocktails. Yeah. And uh, one day we should talk to him about the history of booze because the man has got more vermouths and syrups and um, you know, different varieties of spirits in his house than any normal person. Yes. Well, not to invade uh, uh, John and his partner, his husband's uh, privacy, but uh, as we know, they uh, moved from Amsterdam back to the United States a couple of years ago. And I believe the tab for moving their alcohol was as big as the tab for moving their furniture uh, yeah, across uh, the pond. Yeah, I, mean, I I went to their place in Amsterdam. I'm not. It was like a bar, so yeah, I, yeah. I'm not surprised. So we'll definitely have John on. But in the meantime, let's plug his podcast. We'll put it in the show notes. It's a Doctor Who podcast. It's excellent. Yes, and I think it's called No, Not the Mind Probe. Yeah, no, no, not the Mind Probe. I, I yes. think there might be an exclamation point on there. I'm not sure. We'll 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 put that in the show notes. If you're yes. a Doctor Who fan, especially, it's awesome. But even if you uh, aren't, it's just fun to, to listen to. Not instead of ours, but, you know, in addition to ours. Now, as well as. Roaring in at number one with uh, a bullet, as we said in one of our earlier episodes, is, of course, the Calcutta Light Horse episode. Our fans love that episode. I, even as it was being put out, it was the most popular one we did. I'm not sure... It probably still is the most popular on listener uh, on Spotify. It may not be as the most popular on YouTube right. before we did video, but talk about one, how you came to that story, how you came to write it and, and, and why people love it so much. So um, first of all, it's also the most popular story that I told on, on Twitter. So I, um, I, look at, i take a look at the viewing count of stories online so that I, apart from anything else so i can then put it on the dust jacket of a book and say <laughs> i've got this many views that sure. story alone has more than one hundred eighty thousand reads so you think i'm telling i've, I've got a couple hundred stories up on, online so far and yeah. for one story alone to have one hundred eighty thousand uh readers is, is going some and yeah. um 
the re so the reason that story first occurred to me was um that there's a, a movie about it that I saw when I was a boy. Sea Wars. Well, yes, not a very successful film, despite the fact it's got an amazing cast. Uh, it's Roger solid Moore. though. I, I watched it right before yeah. that episode. It's pretty good. Gregory Peck, David Niven. Um, it, it's a genuine. It's a Trevor Howard. It's a it, as you say. It's a it's a very solid film. It's got this ridiculous love interest inserted into it, which is is not in the um uh, the book. The books the the book that I I read is uh, about it is um by a guy called Lessor, um who James Lessor, who's still with us, and I paid full some tribute to him uh, yeah. when I, I I told the story. Uh, so I'd read I, I'd told the story. Um, sorry, excuse me. I'd watched the movie that tells the story. And then I had a copy like the it was done up like novelization of the of the film type cover with Roger Moore and and, and, and Gregory Peck on screen. So it was a on movie a, before it was a book. No, oh. it was a it was a proper researched historical book. OK. And and the copy I have of that genuine historian's excellent work it was reproduced after the film. As if it were like a novelization, uh, right? See, now I'm right. sure I'm sure he laughed all the, all the way to the bank and didn't mind too much about this trivialization of his excellent research. But he went to, he he did it properly. He went to the archives. He found out the details about the German deserters coming to uh, the Allied side and so forth. He'd done the research about these guys going the wrong way around India and going on the train across it, and and, um, and finding out the um, uh, the easiest way to get the Germans off the ship in the neutral port in Ger was to uh, put on a free night at all the brothels to get the sailors. I uh, love that's off, my off favorite the, part of the story. Off the boats, um, pouring the whiskey over themselves to prop up the myth, the, the lie that they were businessmen out on a frolic of their own. James Lesser researched Lisa researched all of these things, and um, because I was at home, uh, uh, this this book, um, I'm a parent's home. I mean, this long yeah. forgotten book from my teens was on one of my shelves, and I just picked it up off the shelf, and I. I was of two minds about telling the story because of all the stories I've told in on Twitter and in the books, it is the most well-known because there's a film about it. Yeah, you can't say yeah. it's obscure when it, if there's a movie right. about it, but it's also such a banger and it's so unlikely. And I thought there was life in it yet. And I thought one of the things that had been underemphasized was the quiet dignity of the men who did. They were, I'm not being sexist. They were all men who did it. Yeah. Um, the quiet dignity of the men who would volunteered out of retirement to go and mount this this mission because when these old buffers went back to um calcutta they were told by the special operations executives who recruited them to do it yeah, one more thing chaps don't tell anyone the portuguese Never. portuguese whose, whose neutrality they'd violated portuguese wouldn't like it you see and none of them did yeah. they took it to their to their graves it took uh, it took research uh, lesser in the uh, in the archives many years later when the um the documents were declassified as you would say um for their story to be told and i thought that that's one of the things i emphasize in my telling of yes. the tale so uh, also it's tremendous fun so i yeah. just I, lo I love i love telling it well and and to your last point uh these guys i won't use the british term because i'm not sure how what it means but these these elderly guys um who kept their mouth shut for the rest of their lives i would like to think that would happen today but boy i mean every former cia officer wants to go on tv you know we've got these leaks out of the pentagon right now as we record this in april 2023 
Can I check that that's can I check that that's true that every former CIA officer wants to go on TV? Brian, is that is that true? It's 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 a and it's an exaggeration. Uh, let me let me rephrase. Many 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 more than would have wanted to uh, twenty five years ago. And by the way, of course, I'm one of them. But I don't go on TV and give away classified information. Uh, no, a I, lot of I, I, do. and I didn't mean to imply that you did. Or, or, or if I did, I I'm sorry. No, 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 I don't no. think I don't think I did. No, um, I'm just uh, I'm just saying the culture of uh, of fame uh, in some ways has overtaken the honor of secrecy. I think, unfortunately, well, that's right. And so w- when these guys from the Calcutta uh, Light Horse um, went back. Uh, to uh, went back home obviously with indecent haste britain um disavailed itself uh, of empire and i mean that sincerely uh, it's not just a the speed with which we sought to throw off our colonial um ties um itself caused problems um Mm -hmm. now of course that was less the case in india with independence in in 47 but um the calcutta light horse was promptly disbanded after the war um I one of the things I say in the book is that I, I dare say that these men didn't mind the lack of publicity one bit, but they disliked the ignominious disbanding of their famous and um, yeah a, and proud proud uh, uh, regiment a great deal. Yeah, so I, I just want to uh, circle back to this point you made earlier, which I don't think I knew from when we did the episode, which is that the version of the actual historical book that was put out after the movie was pitched as and published publicized as a uh, 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 you know fictionalization uh, a novelization of the movie yeah it so that i haven't got the copy in front of me because it's, it's it's in various numbers but it it didn't say novelization of the film but it says as told in the film the sequels right, right, with right, a big right. picture of Roger Moore a big <laughs> right. picture of uh, of i think Gregory Peck and a picture of the the woman who's not even in the book <laughs> right Roger Roger, Roger, Roger Moore, Moore's your, love interest your yeah. your, fa- your favorite bond um, he's so clearly I'm, the best James. Clearly the best James Bond. I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell a very quick Gregory Peck story, which I just read yesterday. But I, but to, on this point of the the novelization, um, have you ever seen uh, the stage musical The Book of Mormon? No, I did see um, Jerry Springer the Opera, but I didn't see. <laughs> so I, I have been very transparent on our show that uh, my father was an Episcopal minister and. I don't blow shit on anyone's religion because we only exist because Henry VIII wanted a divorce, blah, blah, blah. However, uh, I did go to see the Book of Mormon and the 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 star, I won't say the protagonist because he's not portrayed positively, but the main character is Brother Cunningham. No relation, fictional character. And this musical, you really should see it. Everyone should see it. It, it skewers a lot of the fundamental things about Mormonism and Mormon theology, but it's always kind of sympathetic too. Like it's not, it's not an attack. It's not a hit piece, but it does expose a lot of the, let's just say inconsistencies of some of the the Mormon tradition. But the point of the story is you go to the musical, at least the two times I've seen it, you get the playbill out. The, the, the brochure that they give you at the theater. You open it to the cast page and right next to it, and this happened twice, so I bet it happens every time. Right next to it is a full page ad for the actual Mormon church. And the tagline is, 
you've seen the musical, now read the book. Saints. You know, why not, right? Nothing ventured, nothing gains. Spread your bread upon the waters. I rather admire the, I mean, the Church of Mormon's not a lot short of Hutzpah anyway, but um, you've got to admire the, the Hutzpah in that. I want to, Absolutely. I want to explain that what I just said wasn't just a throwaway remark. I, um, when Mormons come to um, uh, places to proselytize, you know, sometimes they go to um, more challenging places, I'm sure, but quite often in the past, at least, they used to come to the UK which sounds like a pretty easy gig. And I suppose you're looking to fish where the fish are and convert people you could convert. And they, like detectives, they hunt in pairs, uh, except unless you're a, a Russian uh, detective. When you're or hunting, Columbo. if you're if, Yes, indeed. If you're as good as Columbo, you hunt as an individual. If you're most detectives, you hunt in pairs. If you're Russian detectives, you hunt as a pair as threes, one who can read, one who can write, one to watch over the intellectuals. And... Um, <laughs> The, uh, the 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 pair in the Mormon uh, pairing is always a senior and a junior. So they do this for two years, the one who's done it for a year and the, then the new guy. And I was approached by a pair of Mormons. And they said, are you interested in the uh, Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints? I said, I am interested. I, I'm not, this is not a joke. I'm, this, is, this happened. I said, I am interested. I'm interested to know how you can justify the practice of posthumous baptism. <laughs> Uh, and this young the, the the younger one saw earnestly to explain for like 30 seconds and the older one tapped on the shoulder and said no, come on <laughs> come on let's go let's go try someone else because your parents will have been uh baptized into the church of mormon your grandparents will have been oh baptized yeah and, the and they're part of the tally and and yeah. when when natural disasters happen you'll, you'll get some enterprising folks who will baptize all those people because then they count in your in your heavens accounting. I don't know what it is, but th it's funny. We're gonna we're gonna close it up here soon. But but what the story you just told reminded me of. Uh, actually, my first job out of college was as a uh, field director for a United States Senate campaign in the state of Iowa. And this is not going to give anything away. Everybody knows I'm old. This is 1984, and our candidate had been, uh, was a sitting member of Congress. He's a Watergate baby. He tried to get elected in 1972, lost. He won in 1974. And midway through the campaign, we, he brings us all into campaign headquarters because he knows we're all getting burned out and tired of walking around and knocking on doors and getting chewed out and all that stuff that happens in the campaign that you know better than I do these days. And he says, I want to tell you guys a story. I ran for Congress for the first time in 1972, and I lost by 30,000 votes. And I spent the next two years knocking on every single door in my district, and I won by 30,000 votes. And so I want you to be out there every day pushing the message as enthusiastically and as hard as you can. However, there come days when the soul must be fed. He said, I remember I was knocking on a door in a part of my district that I knew I would never get their vote because of my ideology and their ideology. And I go to the door and I put my hand out and I have my little pamphlet from the campaign and I say, hey, I'm so-and-so and I would love to be your next congressman. Can I chat with you? And the uh, elderly man uh, behind the door says, you're a goddamn communist bloodsucker. And I would never put you in the Congress for all the money in the world. This is like day 120 of my campaign. And it's probably the 110th door I've knocked on. And 
pretty clear I'm not getting this guy's vote anyway. So I take my brochure and I start to roll it up into a little tube in my hands. And I say, well, sir, I appreciate your opinion, but two things are very clear to me. One, I'm never going to get your vote anyway. And two, pretty likely you can't read. So why don't you just take this and shove it right up your ass? And I never actually did that myself, but it was kind of inspirational, I have to say. There's a former member of parliament uh, in the UK called uh, Bob Marshall Andrew, who was famously interviewed on a doorstep and found out that the person he was, he was a, a Labour Party member, but uh, uh, but not, not particularly left wing. Uh, uh, first of all, every time uh, the election count, uh, uh, election uh, was closed and they went to the count, he would give a live interview and say, I've lost, I've been destroyed by the terrible leadership of my party, these morons. And several hours later, he'd be called back to the count when he'd just scraped in and won and had to say, well, I'm, you know, on reflection, <laughs> and, uh, here I am, willing to serve. Uh, maybe the party's not so bad. Anyway, he was famously... Uh, with journalists with him and he found this guy on the doorstep who had views he didn't like and marshall andrew said on given what you've said i you'll not get you mustn't vote for me and the guy said well, what do you mean he said i forbid you from voting for me well hang on what is a free ballot you are not allowed to vote for me i'll do what i want <laughs> classic reverse psychology yeah yeah. All right. Well, so good talking to you. Good fiftieth well, episode, well, my friend. Well, I just now you've inspired me to say to our many, many, many loyal uh, viewers and listeners: do not tell your friends about this podcast. Do not <laughs> give us a five star review on Spotify. Do not like us on Twitter. In fact, ignore our entire existence. Yeah, I do. And can I give um, one little plug? Uh, because I am going to be um, speaking at the Hartford Literary Festival on Friday, the 30th of June, uh, telling stories like this. Um, we'll find a link uh, to the festival and put it in the show notes. We will. And although our viewers love superstitious stories, don't stay away just because it's Friday the 13th. 30th, love doing this 30th, with you. Here's 30th. to another 50 episodes. Thanks, brother. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Core, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well history. Cheers.